Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show for... 2024. Oh, it's the first one of 2024. It is. It is actually episode 153 of our podcast. Uh, but you're very welcome and happy new year to you. Happy new year. Do you know what that's made me realise? So we 153, if you divide that by three, roughly, that's 50-ish, right? We've hardly missed an episode in the three years because we started at new year. Yes. Well, we, we, we had a, we've had probably two or three episodes off. But we generally speaking, and, and, and I credit you for this because you push me on the weeks that I don't feel like doing it. Yes, I you, do. You, you you make sure we do. And we've done so many things in that period. So many wonderful authors and people from the book industry. Um, some huge names, but you know, also some breakout people who just have amazing stories to tell and have shared so much with us. But it's that's been amazing. We've been to some great places with the podcast as well. So, yeah, we've done some live shows in some amazing places in beer tents and yeah, all sorts. And and you know we had we haven't got any sort of specific plans for next year in terms of you know let's do this big thing. But you can perhaps suggest some ideas to us. Uh, we're very happy to take them on board. But we do have guests booked till um, March, a- a- Yeah, it's the, it's sort of March, April. But wow. actually, you say we haven't got plans, but this, this today's show and last week's show with this panel discussion, we, we may do a few more of those. Yes, because I think that there is a lot to be gained from that. And, um, you know, whether it's Hobeck authors or we... It could pull, be, yeah. Could or we be... could pull together panels from, of other people. Then... With Hobeck, so we could have a Hobeck and then a couple of yeah. randoms, as I call them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as indeed you do. And we haven't even introduced ourselves no. properly. So uh, my name's Adrian Hobart. My name's Rebecca Collins. Together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And suspense. And we also run the Henshaw 5 competition, or the Henshaw competition, short yes. stories. And uh, as we speak, it's the final day for entries and for I, the latest run of, I tell of stories. You, my inbox is pinging all morning. It, it was quite slow, this this competition. It's every four years. Sorry, every four years. Four times a year. So, yes, every three months. Yes. So the de- December competition, as we call it, because December's the end of the competition. Mm. It was quite slow to start with. And I thought, well, people aren't writing short stories because they're busy building up to Christmas. Mm. But over the last week, it's been incredible. And, you know, even in the last few hours, I've had so many emails, so many entries coming in. So it's great. It's fantastic. We've had a good response. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what a good way to start next year is to be a winner of a competition. It is. It is. And uh, we thank our team uh, for judging those entries because uh, it's a lot of work to to read them, shortlist them and then 
make a final decision. Yeah, partic- particularly the first reader. So we have a first reader, a second reader, then a panel. And the yeah. first reader has to read every single story. Gosh. So Wow. You know, and they do it for nothing. They do it for free. Totally. It's it's amazing. So, well, our first episode of 2024, and I, I, th- I don't know about you, but it feels like this is a year where publishing takes another turn in terms of the way things are done and the way to be successful in publishing. Well, if you think back to the beginning of 2023, so much has changed, not only in publishing, but in the discussions around publishing. Mm. What's it going to be like this time next year? Well, the accelerating impact of AI is is obviously the dominant factor here. And we're seeing in the indie industry side of things, people adopting AI to run their marketing and to speed up the process and be more productive, or some people are at least, or are marketing courses to encourage people to think that way. Mm. Um, But I think that, you know that's that's one aspect, but I think that you, you've still got to wait for the traditional industry to catch up and see what they do with it. And at the moment, it it feels like the, the traditional industry is number one job at the moment is either fight or flight, and in in terms of against the AI companies because the AI big players have been ingesting work from both independent authors, but particularly from the traditional industry, and teaching their large language models how to write and, you know, gain their knowledge and think in the way that authors do. And that has been largely without the permission of the authors themselves. And so there is a great groundswell within publishing of either or pay up and we'll forget about it or taking these companies to court. Yes. So the traditional reaction is protection, defense and protection. Which is, is fair enough because, you know, let's be honest, the big tech companies aren't forthcoming in paying up any money for what they're nicking. No. Um, and so what, you know, what is left to, to, to anybody otherwise? I mean, the trouble is that people like ourselves and indeed pretty much you know, anybody outside the big four or five publishers haven't got the resources to launch legal campaigns against it or force things through. So we're all looking to government to step in and regulate and enforce and strengthen copyright laws and things like that. Not that copyright is ever respected anyway in the in the digital world. It's just sort of, you know, everything seems to be fair game. To some degree, yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? I think, and also we just rely on trust of our readers and um, the wider public, you know. Yeah. So I, I mean, I wonder on on various levels. So if you look at what we do as publishers. Will AI make it easier for us to, for instance, edit books? To some small degree, we've used tools like Grammarly and whatever to, you know, within very, very small focused points. And actually, we've kind of abandoned yeah, those things, really. It was too formulaic, I found. Mm. So, um, yeah, it wasn't nuanced enough. No. So, and, and in actually, you know, it might have strengthened, I think, awareness of certain things like, you know, use of passive tenses and passive verbs and, and head hopping and things like that. But um, ultimately, you know, these are things you learn through experience and um, you, you develop an instinct for. And that, I think a human editor is still vastly more yeah. important than that. In terms of commissioning, you know, artwork and whatever, well, AI is increasingly getting more uh, adroit at creating uh, images that uh, 
are comparable with human artists. Um, you know, in our case, uh, Jay Mapp is our main uh, cover designer. And, you know, I th- believe that she uses one or two tools within the AI realm to enhance her process as well. But it is getting quite t- difficult to distinguish sometimes. You know, and you can do an average book cover just using Adobe, no problem at all. Or, you know, it just... Canva's a good one. Canva, yeah. Mm. It can just knock up something that... Uh, and Midjourney is, is the big player in this field. So that's increasingly um, becoming a factor. Uh, in terms of writing books... People are trying to use AI systems to speed up their process. Now, I have, you know, I mean, I hear a lot of podcasts now where they're talking about, I use my AI companion to help me develop characters or suggest plot, you know, points or, you know, structure issues or whatever else like that. And that strikes me that that is just abrogating full responsibility for the creative process. I mean, I have flirted with some of these systems just on their free trials to see what they're like and some of it is of value and um, an awful lot of it isn't Mm. Um, but for those people in the publishing world there are some indies who are just using it to you know teach the language model their style and right knock me out 80,000 words and I'll polish it up later (laughs) that really disturbs me yeah it just seems a bit lazy doesn't it (laughs) Well, I think it's dishonest. Is the honest? Well, I mean, it's not. It's only dishonest if then if they don't talk about it. If they're talking about it on the podcast, then there's no dishonesty. Well, I, I guess not. I guess not. But which of their readers is going to be going to find find out? You know how it was done. Uh, not many, I, I dare say. But anyway, that's that's another factor. So that means that potentially the the market is further flooded with stuff that you know, isn't sweated over. It's sort of, it's kind of using computer sweatshops, if you like, to yeah, produce. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what we're talking about exactly a year from now, mm. where AI has gone. And- right, and the other thing I would say is that behind the AI side of things, and we talked about narration ad nauseam in the last uh, few months particularly, as more and more platforms allow AI narration to be published and charged for, which I find more and more disturbing. But the the other thing is is will platforms like Amazon improve their uh, sort of market you know the, the suite of tools that you have as a marketeer yeah that has using AI to actually hit the target more often and more effectively and more cost effectively and that's what you know we're waiting for I think Facebook have caught up and have made big advances in that field potentially. Um, but the corollary to that is I think that they're also alienating their users because, let's be oh. honest, you know, as you said this to me this morning, she yeah. through, scrolled through Facebook, my God, there are so many adverts. It was it was bonkers this morning. It was all sales stuff and clothing and um, hair products. I don't know where, why they think I need hair products. Right, and so that's denting the core user experience, and I think there is a drift away from Facebook um, for, by people because, because of the... The, the dross but at the same time if you're looking at from our perspective when we do a facebook campaign we're looking to get our books seen and bought and we're adding to that chatter and that um yeah that wall of noise we've we've swung both ways haven't we between yeah. facebook ads are brilliant facebook ads don't do anything facebook ads are brilliant and i honestly don't know well the trouble is that you know the way to do it changes so often and the the bottom line is this, is that it doesn't matter what form of digital marketing you go for, 
The trouble is you have to spend to test and then only when you've done loads of spending on your testing are you able then, if you are savvy enough, to figure out what was working or what wasn't and switch off the things that weren't working and enhance and and spend more money behind the things that Mm. are working. But you still need capital to start that process and then you need some... I mean, there's a degree of talent involved and a certain sort of mindset to be able to take advantage of what you learn. And you're only getting a fractional sight of the real data yeah. because that's being kept behind Amazon's paywall. And, and you know, they're, they're keeping their well, – not their paywall. It's behind their system. And, indeed, Facebook. Facebook, at least, have set up their algorithms to enhance and learn from what you're doing – and target better, yeah. whereas Amazon doesn't do that, and so that is to well to, to to a degree. I mean, they're doing it because they, you know, they're not interested in engagement; they're interested in just sales, and so that's what they they they. But, you know, it does. It just I can't see that changing dramatically in twenty twenty four. So that the the power lies in the in the advertiser. Hello, little dog running. It's. Uh, this way into our I garden. I just saw a flash of white. It was that dog, was it? Yeah, it's it's the dog from number one, um, right. little Cavapoo. Um, oh, sweet. He used to live here, so you can understand why he keeps running back in. <laughs> Very sweet. Aki was safely tucked up in the kitchen. So there we go. I mean, you know, those are things that, that are going on, and, um, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily sound like a, a good set of developments for a company like ours in terms of the, the, the environment in which we're, we're operating. No, it's still it's still a very, very difficult it side is. of the business. It is. We're, we're brilliant at making books, and our books are fantastic. I love them. I feel very passionately about our books. Yeah. But it's getting them to the right people is the hard bit. And that is the renewed challenge for us <laughs> in 2024, and that's yeah. what we will focus on. But, you know, alongside other things, our freelance work and all that malarkey. So tons of things still and challenges ahead but i feel a sense of new energy at the moment i mean we had a little bit of a tiny weeniest of mini breaks over christmas i mean really negligible because you worked every day and i worked most days yeah um, but it just felt like we took the intensity down 10 percent, and that was enough to re-energize yeah because the day-to-day distractions weren't there so i yesterday i finished um reading the next Rob Gittins book and I think it's brilliant I can't wait to publish that and I'm about to start Malcolm Holland Drake's reading his as well um, The Edge of the Land yeah um, which I've already read and it is excellent and you're doing the, the more detailed yeah so like a sort of an edit proof, on it um, um, which is big and I've been in the studio for a large chunk of this week getting close to finishing Bodies in the Water by AJ Aberford and um yes so tony he's nearly done uh, well in terms of recording <laughs> everything's yes. another factor and then the, the, the inevitably because the voices have evolved and i've got more and more confident with each voice although there are times and this is always the case with narration where you come to a character and you just can't quite place the voice the second time around or the third time around as you did it before mm. for whatever reason and um so I think there's going to be some retro revoicing of characters because in certain parts of the book they've been really on point and then other points where it's slightly wobbled a bit. And not not dramatically, but just to my it, ear. Yeah, so it's a subtle change that you, you, deal, you, have to, you feel you have to rectify. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then, you know, it'll be up to the gods to see whether 
it's up to up to muster but it's a gosh it's been a pleasure to read and perform because i you know you know it's written well in my book when i'm a narrator and i get through a whole page of text without a fluff mm. and it may be because i warmed up well or i'm in the flow but largely it's because no it's it does make incredibly a difference well written because you, you have come out the booth and you're you say things like you know this book's quite tough because it just doesn't doesn't flow quite well enough. And well, some, often it's the sentence structure. You hit words and you think, "Why is it there?" Yeah. And your your brain trips you up. You know, why is that adverb in that position in the sentence and not in another position? You know, it just doesn't make sense. But so this is the advice we give to um, any writer: is read your book out loud because mm. you'll be surprised how different it sounds and how sort of things you see hearing it out loud that you don't when you're reading it and you think exactly what you're saying, they might think, oh, that adverb shouldn't be there. It should be there. You, you will get a feel for it mm. without question. And, it, you know, it will enhance the text and therefore the reader experience, um, you know, because you're not having to reread something because you didn't understand it the first time. And that's the number one thing, I think. Mm, definitely. Okay, right. Well, let's get to our panel. And um, we are delighted that for this second special, we gather together three superb Hobeck authors to talk about police procedurals and how to write them and the considerations that go into it and how do you be you know write an original police procedural because it's such a pop- popular genre how do you do the research and you know what are the issues keeping up with the science yeah exactly keeping up with the science so Brian Price is your man for that because he is the king of UK crime science in terms of knowledge uh, and fantastically well known uh, for it and advises some really leading authors as well as his own books and the works of Hobeck authors as well, which we're extremely grateful for. So he joins us on our panel, as does Harry Fisher, joining us from Scotland. And uh, Harry has uh, written four books for us, and um, he is an excellent, excellent author and uh, looks at it from a from a different angle to some quite a lot of other people, I think, as well. So yeah. uh, that is terrific. And we've got Rachel sergeant as well joining us and um we are really looking forward to publishing the second of yeah, her novels her, for us um next year her angle is slightly year. different isn't it so mm. she she talks about that on this panel so that's quite interesting too okay let's join our panel then for our new year's look at police procedurals well we've already had our festive humor session uh, rebecca but now we're going to get really serious for christmas yes so like the, we've had the Morecambe and wise christmas show and now we've got the queen's speech the king's speech <laughs> <laughs> it is we're going to be dealing with police procedurals and we're talking to a wonderful panel of hobeck authors who are experts at this field and they are harry fisher joining us from scotland we've got rachel Sargent down in gloucestershire and not far from her is Brian Price. Just down the road. Indeed. Uh, fabulous authors all, and thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you a happy Christmas. Thank happy you very much. Christmas to you. Yeah, yeah. Harry, let's start with you. What's the appeal, do you think, the enduring appeal, because it is one of the most popular forms of genre fiction there is, police procedures. What's the appeal for you of writing police procedures? I think it, um, it allows you to look at various different aspects of the legal process, if you like. It's not just the police, because you'll have pathologists, you'll have um, 
doctors, uh, medical advisors, uh, various fields um, of the legal process will be involved, not just the police. Uh, and then, of course, if your if your case or your investigation does get as far as the courtroom, um, then uh, you'll have a legal framework involved there too. Um, Scotland is different from uh, the rest of the UK in that we have um, procurator fiscal, uh, the Crime Office for procurator, procurator Fiscal Services, and it's the fiscal who decides whether a case uh, goes to court. So usually, uh, well, in one of my books, the second one, Be Sure Your Sins, um, we had a, a, a procurator fiscal by, by the name of Leo Contini, um, and he's appeared in uh, other books as well. But um, I have to be aware that I'm writing not just for a books for readers in Scotland, I'm, you know, they're worldwide readers, and so I've usually got to explain that. So sometimes the trick there is explaining it quite quickly um, and then moving on very fast. But I think the appeal is that uh, people are quite um, salacious about these things and they like to get in about the background um, and the various different aspects allow uh, authors to do that. Mm. But that's, it, it is, as you say, challenging to try and tell a story, but also stay true to the proper procedure. It was vital that you stay true to the proper procedure because if you don't, some somebody will pick you up on it. Uh, and all you can do sometimes is at the end of the book explain that you know this might not be the case where you live, but it's kind of the case where where you know where I live. Um, but you have to be absolutely uh, you know crystal clear on uh, on procedure. And uh, you know we've got Brian Price with me with us today, and, and Brian's helped me with that. Um, I've got his book here somewhere. Um, write for the science, crime writing for the science, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, and I've been in touch with Brian a couple of times to clarify points of procedure um, because it's absolutely vital. If you get it wrong, someone will pick you up on it. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, it's instant, you know, ruins the credibility. So, Brian, I mean, the devil's in the details. That's something that you're... You're a very, details man. You are a details man. Um, <laughs> I am, I guess. <laughs> is that part um, of the I mean, appeal, though, for you writing police procedurals? Well, I, think right. I think it's important to get it right. I think there are two things. I mean, firstly, Stephen King made this um, famous quote about the world is full of picky-ass readers whose life's work is to tell you where you screwed up. Um, and, and Harry's right. You know, People will send you sort of complaining emails and so on. Or even worse, put something horrible on an Amazon review. Um, but yeah, I, I like to get the details right. But the, the thing to remember about police procedurals is that when we write them, we cut out a huge amount of really boring stuff because we're not writing police manuals. We have to pick out the bits. We have to telescope the time scale. Um, you know, it can take months to do a lot of the, the work, which we have to do in you know, really a, a half a dozen pages or so on. So we've got to take out the boring stuff, keep the interesting stuff, keep the relationships between the officers right and with the forensic officers you know, the socos or csis whatever you call them um and make sure you've got the momentum and you can uh, the, one of the things i like is the way that the story gradually unravels as you or plays out as you get more and more details coming in you get the 
uh, pathologist report, not the same day as the murder usually. <laughs> um, you get the forensic uh, reports coming back, then you get phone searches, you get the electronic stuff, which is a vital part of police procedures now. And gradually it, it leads up to a climax. And, and that I find satisfying when at the end of it, everything's put together and they arrest somebody or you know, there's a denouement of some kind or another. Yeah. But Rachel, I mean, it's a genre that you're relatively recent to because you've written other things in the past um, in, in different genres. How challenging is it approaching a police procedural with all of that you know, wealth of detail that can go wrong. Um, I think I took a completely different approach to this. I, I My standpoint was I ain't ever going to be able to write accurate police drama. There are enough experts out there writing police dramas who can do that. And really what I've gone for is what I would call something like a simulated authenticity, which is basically my way of saying I'm making it up. Um, I, I've not really attempted to get the the detail that accurate, and it's it's quite obvious from the start that my police procedurals are more about the puzzle of the case and about the characters. There's a lot in in mine about um, not only the the leading detective, but also her wider team, and about all the potential suspects. We go into the head of various potential suspects. And it, there, there are a lot of character studies in there. So although it, I've used the police procedural as the, the format to use for my mystery, for my suspense story, I think the mystery and the suspense is, is more important for my type of book than the actual detail. And I think that's quite clear. I mean, I don't think I'm hoodwinking anyone with that. No, I mean, but... There, there is always a danger, though, isn't there? That if you if you don't get something important right, then you're going to lose your reader. I mean, you, you're setting, signing a contract, if you like, with them, uh, where, it, I mean, some will approach it from the point of view of, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> Does that not worry you? Um, not really. Um, I have sought advice on things. Brian was somebody who, who helped with uh, my first book with you which is called Her Deadly Friend mm. and I had somebody being poisoned in that and he helped me get that accurate um, <laughs> but as far as um, when you get to the crime scene yes I've talked about continuity of evidence and, and not barging into a crime scene and you know all this sort of lift, lifting something up with the end of a pen kind of nonsense I've avoided all that kind of thing but as far as the the actual bureaucratic procedure and the very the different specialists who would be involved in different aspects of a crime scene I haven't gone into that uh, what I've tended to do more of is look at group dynamics I've never worked in a police situation but I've worked in lots of different teams I've worked in an office I know how they work I know how hierarchy works and I've concentrated on that kind of thing that's yeah, not to that's say a, that's, that's a... not to say I don't like um, the authentic police procedurals because I do. I love reading them and I, and I like getting the information from writers who who know about that. But that's not the approach I personally take. So, do you so you, did you did you read a lot of police procedurals um, in order to sort of get a feel for the genre? Because we were talking earlier about how 
we think the readers of police procedurals are the trickiest because they they are obsessed with that genre more than readers of psychological thrillers or even action thrillers they expect m- more accuracy than other people did i don't know they just seem like a tougher audience <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've not experienced that. I think uh, I think people, when they see my books, they know that, that it's about suspense and mystery. Uh, I love um, Peter Robinson's books. I enjoyed all of those. And I've read a few of the um, Peter James's. Um, so, I, you know, I like those kind of mainstream ones. I've read a few um, Anne Cleves. But I wouldn't say that I read them to help me write my own. I've I've always read them. You know, I read them because I like them. And at some stage further down the line, I decided to write one myself. Mm. I mean, Harry, it's it's interesting, and and this is I think equally applies to you, Brian. The more you know the detail, I, I imagine that things open up actually in a way. It's just, it's not as constricting as initially you might think, but actually there are opportunities in knowing how things are done and how things can be avoided. Because in, in, in fact, Harry, in, in your most recent book, it's kind of, it's, you've kind of got the perfect crime and actually it's about um, the, the slight things that can unravel in the perfection of the, of the criminal. Well, yeah, you're, so the book you're referring to is Yes, I Killed Her. Yes, I Killed Her, yeah. Where you find out on page one that he did indeed kill her. Um, and it's then the remaining 370-odd pages are about um, whether or not... He, well, first of all, how he killed her, um, and then secondly, did he get away with it? So the the idea behind that came from watching um, Murder on the Orient Express about three Christmases ago, and the fact that Poirot solved murders with mainly his intelligence and powers of observation and a limited amount of uh, forensic science that existed at the time. So knowing how things work does enable you to dismantle it uh, and not quite write it in reverse, but but work it through in reverse that says, if this happens or for this to happen, what do the police need to either do or miss? Um, and I had a a piece of technology that I needed to work in a particular way, and then I discovered it didn't. Um, so then I just had to write it in such a way that it sounded as though it could work. Um, but then the police had to find that, and then they had to figure it out as well. So, yeah, knowing how they operate is, is I wouldn't say it's vital, but it's extremely handy. But you can pick that up from documentaries on, on the TV. Um, there was a brilliant one in the Midlands a year or so, two years ago, maybe, um, the real CSI. And mm. that was a terrific, terrific programme. Um, and they told you how they did things. So it's really then just a question of putting it in the in the criminal's mind and, and making the criminal do it in such a way that eventually he may or may not be found out. Mm. Well, Brian, I mean... Yeah. I think you're right, right, Agent, about what you said about it gives you opportunities. I mean, because if you can have a situation where the police fail to do something, um, they could compromise the chain of evidence so that it would be inadmissible in court. Uh, They could forget to check something so that the suspect can escape. Uh, They can type in the wrong number into a, a, a 
number plate search and get nothing. Um, so the, there is the opportunity, as you know more, to see what could go wrong rather than just, well, we can't find him, Gulf. You know, you've got a reason to see why. Um, and again, obviously, with the science, then there are things you can get wrong. Um, I think it, there are some things which it's easy to get right, you know, like the, num the number of hours you can keep a suspect in custody, um, how and when you administer the caution, um, the big bugbear of mine on TV is you get a couple of uh, Socos CSIs in their protective suits, and then the the in inspector comes traipsing around in his size tens, contaminating the crime scene. <laughs> if you can avoid some of the really basic stuff, then it doesn't really matter if you didn't use form XY twenty two three slash five for taking a statement. Um, and if you look at the way you know, there are there are police officers, ex police officers who write crime books um and they could be brilliant i mean graham bartlett is a tremendous writer and he advises other people on on police procedures as well um but there's another author uh ex job and and their stuff is pretty turgid and you think well you know yeah you, you've got to get it right but don't make it sound so boring mm, I, yeah i see your point i mean you know it's there as you know that there are quite a few ex job as you say uh writing but in terms of your perspective brian i mean keeping across scientific developments because you know you are a respected advisor on the science poisoning poisoning particularly <laughs> yes i mean anything involving chemicals you, you, you're the man but it, it is um it might how difficult is it to keep across yeah do you... all of the, because it, it seems to be accelerating I, I dare say now ai must be coming into it as well isn't it we'll have ai detectives I... soon yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd probably bang up the wrong people again. Um, no, I, I don't. I haven't looked at AI. I have to admit, it's a very complex area. But just basic forensic stuff. Um, when I was writing the book, which which Harry referred to, they were developing techniques for identifying whether somebody had taken cocaine, for instance, from sweat in the fingerprints, because fingerprints occur because you leave little oily, sweaty marks mm. which then can be picked up by the dust if you analyze those you can see whether someone's been ex taken cocaine and more to the point you can find out whether they actually ingested it themselves because of it's the way it's changed in the body um or whether they happen to be you know handling a, a banknote that someone's used for snorting the stuff um all these things are developing dna is developing and, and the idea of phenotypical dna predicting what someone looks like from the dna is is developing so you have to keep keep an eye on it but there, there is a a gap between the, what's going on in research and what can actually be applied by the the detectives uh, and that's that's somewhat different because of the costs of doing these things um the, one of the biggest constraints on, on police operations at the moment is is lack of money. And An Angela Gallup, who's one of the country's leading forensic scientists, has said that if people get away with crimes, it won't be because of lack of science, it'll be lack of resources. Mm. Oh, that's a very Yeah, that's very sobering, isn't it? Uh, it? It is. Now, Rachel, going back to a point you, you made about getting the dynamics right between the team and using a police procedural as a framework in which to talk about human dynamics, character development, and interaction um you know there it, it there are police procedures sometimes where you you, you kind of come across the tropes for you as an author you know i.e 
there's the copper with the, the dirty fingernails who doesn't really look after themselves is a bit of a bigot or whatever it might be um uh, but one of the things we were thinking about asking was really why you in fact all of you yeah, yeah. Um, your main characters within those investigations as being women now rachel i mean clearly you know th- th- that kind of makes sense but what's what's the appeal of going down that direction as opposed to a male detective well for me my main character uh in the Gleevem suspense series who is di steph lewis i've got to say she just arrived in my head fully formed i mean literally <laughs> i i can i know exactly what she looks like i know what she has to eat i know how tall she is i know all her backstory she just arrived and and I just wrote her. I mean, I didn't. It wasn't a conscious decision to have um, a female lead. When I wrote a previous uh, police procedural, which was called The Good Teacher, my lead detective was female, but the very close second um, detective was male. And again, they just arrived fully formed, and I just kind of worked with them. It, it's weird. It, it often seems to happen with characters. It, always, it sounds a bit highfalutin to say they just arrived in my head. But, You're just a vessel. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it just, it, it just is. And I, I think when that does happen, it makes it much easier. You haven't got to spend ages, kind of character building because the character's there. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, with with Steph, you you created a character who's. Um, not entirely sympathetic, should we put it that way? Because mm. she, from her sort of early life, um, she was the school bully. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, she was. A, she's a difficult character, and but she's real. But she, I mean, equally real. But um, was that she arrived in your head? It strikes me that it's an odd thing for the school bully to go and go and end up being. No, I don't but, think it is. But often, often when <laughs> just she, look when at you, the mess. When the main character does arrive in you in your head it it's you're seeing it from her point of view so she doesn't see that she was a bully and it's only gradually towards the end of book one and it's explored more in book two that she starts to see that maybe other people see her in a different way from the way she sees herself but she also has has her own situations where she is victimized in different ways i mean victimized probably a strong word for it but there are situations where she's vulnerable as well so it's not just that she's a you know bash you over the head steal your pocket money bully there's there's this more subtle than that but that that does reflect reality doesn't it a lot of people who bully or bullying behavior shall we say have experienced it or go on to experience it, you know, because that's what they know. Yeah. But she would never see herself as a bully and, and what and what she did was was not could be worse. It was Yeah, it's quite low level, worse. wasn't it, really? <laughs> um, but it's it sort of comes back you know, thirty years later in a case. Mm. And yeah. Face it then. Absolutely. Brian, what was the appeal of making your main character a, a female detective? I suppose I wanted to avoid the the cliche of the alcoholic middle-aged male who doesn't get on with anybody and divorced and what have you. Um, And I I suppose a bit like uh, what Rachel was saying, Mel 
cotton came into my mind almost sort of fully formed. I knew that she'd be um, ambitious, but not in the way of sort of putting other people down. She'd desperate to do, do justice to her, her mother who was killed on the line of duty, another ex-copper, and to her father who retired as a DCI. So she had a, a police background. She wanted to live up to perceived expectations. Um, but I wanted to be intelligent, but also a team worker, because you have to be a team worker when you're really investigating a murder. You've got about 30 detectives and civilian support staff working on it, and you've got to get on with people. Um, so I, I wanted to do that. And and she's also got a bit of a quirky sense of humour, a bit silly sometimes. So I think that that was all part of what I hope was a, a rounded character, which developed over the, the novels. Um I, as I said, I think in a recent article interview, I, I quite like strong female characters in fiction. I've been attracted to them ever since I read, I think, Modesty Blaze in the, the late 60s. Um, and now we've got Jane Tennyson, we've got Rachel's yeah. character, we've got um, Jane Casey's Meade Kerrigan and, and quite a few people who are credible characters, not just somebody who's put in there for some kind of, I don't know, balance kind of thing, which doesn't necessarily work. So she's she's intelligent she's tough um but also i hope quite sympathetic yeah same for you then harry i mean your mel is another mel c yes <laughs> yes that's right uh well mine was a complete accident because um the first book first book what i wrote was a standalone um and it wasn't part of the mel cooper series um and st- the two secondary character, two of the secondary characters who were police officers were Mel and her sidekick Andrew. Um, um, when I wrote that book, it was the book I wanted to write, and when I finished it, I thought, right, that's me done. I've written my book. Um, but when I couldn't stop the ideas coming and decided to write a second book at the same time, an awful lot of the reviews coming in about the first book, which was called Way Beyond a Lie. Um, said, we love Mel and Andrew. Um, If you're writing another book, give them their own series. Um, And that's what happened. So Mel being the lead character, that's Mel Cooper as opposed to Mel Cotton, uh, Mel Cooper being the lead character was a complete accident. But there's another side to it that I discovered in that submitting... Uh, manuscripts to literary agents, one of the key phrases that appeared absolutely everywhere and still does, is that agents are looking for what they call a distinctive voice, um, a distinctive narrative voice. Now, Mel appears in the first person, and I just figured it was easier to give a female a distinctive uh, narrative voice than a male. So I was quite happy to stick with Mel on uh, on that basis. But just going back to something that Brian's just said, um, I was getting utterly fed up of the cliche that every single male, oh, sorry, main protagonist had to have something wrong. You know, a drink, drug, sex, relationship problem, you name it, dozens and dozens of them. And my main protagonist doesn't. She's just a good, honest, hardworking copper that wants to solve crimes and put the bad guys away. So I avoided all these cliches 
for better or for worse, because there are a lot of people who believe they must have, you know, they are meant to be human beings and they are fallible, but I just did not want a cliche. But the, the, I guess the short answer is A, it was an accident, but B, I felt it was easier to, um, you know, to make it uh, the distinctive voice in a female rather than a male, rightly or wrongly, but that's what I felt. I've just had an idea. Go on, go on. We should write a fictional story. It's a police conference, and they all get together and talk to each other. <laughs> well, why not? Yeah, they say to each other. That would be a great Christmas book, wouldn't it? Yeah. So well, you know, that, not, not just your book, but Malcolm as well, and uh, Rob. <laughs> that's been done to some extent because there was a bunch of short stories where people were paired. So we had um, Val McDermid's. Uh, which which of her characters was it? Uh, the Tony Rob the Tony Robinson series, meeting Roy Grace on working on a case together, um, and the other pairings of people in, in sort of short stories perhaps been done. But incidentally, my um, character was originally going to be Mel Cooper, because not many people spotted it. But in the opening scenes in the police station, all the officers involved had names which referred to jam or marmalade or something. Um, there was a Robinson, a Hartley. I couldn't work in a PC Nutella, um, but we did. Have, it was going to be Mel Cooper, but then I found it had been used, so I had to change it to cotton. <laughs> PC Marmite, yeah. Yeah. Me to think about something that you do really, really well, which is weaving the sort of Easter eggs. Oh yes, yeah. I like Easter eggs. But yeah. the, I mean, it's not just traditional Easter eggs, like you're saying. You know, names after things you've spread on bread. <laughs> Although there was somebody else's done. I can't remember the author's name. It was, it was writing in, I think, the 80s. He had a detective called Harry Fathers, and he went over to America for some reason. And all the detectives over there he met were named after North American beers like Coors and Molson's, and I think it was a Budweiser as well. Um, so maybe that sort of planted a seed. But, uh, yeah, I, I like to play little games. There's, the latest one's got Sherlock Holmes res, residence, uh, references, and then the one coming up is a very rude French joke, so I'll uh, leave you to Ooh, discover that. We'll have to look out for that then. Yeah, we have so to I'm, not, I'm really rubbish at dis- detecting these things, but we have had people point them out to me. You know, when like the uh, reviewers or uh, advanced readers will say, oh, I've just noticed this in Brian's book. That's very clever. And I think, oh, <laughs> bypass me completely. <laughs> Harry, you made a very interesting point, and I'm going to take this one for Rachel. Cliché. Harry deliberately made sure that his character did not have the run of cliches that many characters do you know detectives have flaws and you mentioned the alcoholic you know male divorce divorce pci yeah. uh grumpy that sort of thing um is that in your mind when you're writing avoiding those cliches well, any cl- yeah any cliches mm. in general in writing no i, su- I suppose the yeah the alcoholic middle-aged um male has been has been done rather a lot uh so it, it kind of just go kind of goes without saying that you avoid that one i think uh although you i mean you could flip that round now and say actually would you for another one and you could make a character like that really interesting if you if you do it with a bit more depth and actually explore why they're alcoholic um whether that brings any benefits to the job maybe it does i mean there, there are things you could do with us with a stereotype you can flip a stereotype and do quite interesting things with it um so yeah I would, 
avoid cliche, but sometimes you can actually take that cliche and, and run with it and, and uh, develop new lines with it. That's yeah. a challenge for the Brian and Harry then. <laughs> well, I mean, the, you know, alcohol, if you go back a few years, the, the, the professions for which alcoholism was the most serious problems were uh, the police, doctors, GPs and journalists, I believe. Yeah. Um, so undoubtedly, people did drink a lot, and you know the the half bottle of whiskey in the desk drawer was probably quite common in in some forces a while back. Nowadays, they've got health and safety regulations which <laughs> prohibit that, I guess. And and somebody who was really off their face all the time wouldn't last very long in the force anyway. But I do have a couple of a character, an older character in in one of the books, the first book, who did like a drink. Um, not obsessively, but you know, rather more than as good for his liver kind of thing. So you you can't ignore the fact that you know some police officers will drink, and and I do set scenes in the pub where people either tell jokes to sort of lighten the darkness of other parts of the book, or just toss around ideas. And I certainly find that if I'm stuck on a plot, a, a pint of ale or a glass of wine can suddenly loosen up my brain scale cells and I can get going again. Completely creativity juice. I think yes. to, if I can come in on that, it would also depend when you set your writing. So mm. if you were mm. writing the equivalent of, uh, you know, Life on Mars and DCI Gene Hunt, yeah, it would be almost mandatory that they would they would have all of these. They would have they would drink a lot. They would smoke a lot. They would swear a lot. They'd be misogynistic, racist, sexist, everything. <laughs> Um, and I think if you didn't if you didn't write it in that way, then it's possibly a bit unrealistic. Um depending on when mm. you know when your story is being written. And again, yeah. to go back to the humor and the names, uh, I dropped into my second book uh, Peter, Nicholas, Alexander, Catherine, and Sophia uh, ah. in, into the books. And uh, as far as I know, only one person actually spotted what it was all about. Sam being Russian. dim, who are they? Well, I assume Peter, famous Peter family. The great, Peter the Russians. Great and his children. Yeah, Russian, Russian, Russian yeah. rulers. <laughs> um, but I was looking for names, and I started off with Peter, and then just went with the rest of them. So you can you can have a little bit of fun yourself just by dropping these little jokes or quirky things in, and just seeing if any, anyone ever comes back to you on them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, do you? Brian, I'll ask you this question. Do you see any trends in crime fiction? Because I mean, you, you you are working with quite a number of authors who could consult you. And uh, famously, you kept M.W. Oh, yeah. Craven out of jail recently um, because, uh, as I gather it, it he'd written <laughs> essentially a how-to guide to do something very nefarious that, <laughs> that broke the terrorism legislation. Um do you do you yeah, detect any sort of trends now? Um, I think people are trying to get more uh, accuracy. I, I think that's that's good. And you've got your Graham Bartlett's consultancy. There's another called I mean, GB Cops or something, which do the, the police yep. side. Um, and I do. Scientists will often spend time explaining a topic to you so if you really want to find out I, I follow up a bit about this stuff in fingerprints and and emailed the one of the scientists researching into it and she was very helpful and, and gave me stuff there so there is that tend um i think 
some writers are getting more and more bloody, um, as if they're sort of pushing the boundaries to shock. I, d- I don't know sales figures for this sort of thing. You know, I don't know whether so-called cozy novels are, are becoming more dominant in the sales figures than the uh, than the, the sort of slasher thrillers or the or the sort of more milder, if you like, police procedurals. It, I I don't have access to that information, but um, I think there'll always be a place for the police procedural. Um, I know, and, and the danger is, of course, if you try and predict a trend. Um, you can say, yeah, psychological thrillers are in now. And if you're working for one of these publishers, which takes 18 months to get a book out, by the time the book's out, it may well be out of date. So it gets back to the whole idea of write what you want to write and hope someone wants to read it rather than trying to you know, play the market, as it were. Mm. Mm. I think it does depend on how quickly, yeah, if you're self-publishing, that's a lot easier to do, isn't it? Because you can well, write a book this weekend and publish it on Monday. But Rachel, <laughs> you've, you've been working with major publishers. I mean, have you got that sense that they will jump on a trend and only want that type of thing? I think the authors I work with have a very clear idea of where they're going. So if you take someone like Mike Craven, mm. um, he's writing his uh, Poe and Tilly series, which is is fabulous. He started a new series about some guy who can't feel pain, ex ex FBI ex forces working in America, uh, doing all, all sorts of things like Jack Reacher, if you like. There are resonances with with uh, Reacher in that, um, but he can be a bit more ex- flamboyant and extravagant. I think with some of the action sequences, um, I've helped him. I can't tell you what about for I think the book that's coming out next. Um, but it's not poisons, and it's um, you know his, his books are now moving to the big screen thriller kind of territory um, with that series. But he's still writing the poem Tilly ones, which, which is good. Um, I, so I, I don't tend to deal with the publishers per se, but just with the authors, and, and most of them pretty much know where they're going. Um, mm. and so I, I can't predict a trend on having talked to editors of Harper Collins or anything. <laughs> no, no, but Rachel, I mean, you, you've you've dealt with with the big publishers. I mean, do you get a sense that they are directive to their authors in terms of can we push it towards this area, that kind of thing? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. What what I would say is that publishers are very good at anticipating what readers want, and at the moment, what readers want is more of the same with the occasional bit of different. Um, Mm. So people, if they like something, they want that again, but they want it with a little bit of something different in. And I think the way I've seen that, certainly with my own reading choices, is you get the the traditional suspense novel or police procedural or mystery, but the topics being covered are a bit more things that are interesting in the real world today so things that feature for example social influencers or true crime podcasters or recently I read the book um, in the blink of an eye by somebody O'Callaghan I can't remember the lady's first name where the the sidekick police officer is an AI hologram Oh, wow. um, okay. yes, I saw that on the uh, BBC thingy between the covers. Thing. Yeah. So it's a standard police procedural and murders, mystery, missing people, um, assimilating lots of information and leading your way to the to the to the culprit. 
but the the twist is that the sidekick is is an AI machine. So that is what is what I would class as the same but different. Mm, I think that if we can if we can all manage that, <laughs> we'll be shooting up the bestseller charts. But it, it's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, I think right. one thing yeah. I've noticed is there's a, a, a few books come out where there is a kind of supernatural element, and I won't name names, but, but there was one book I read a, a couple of years back, um, which looked like it was a really clever um, standard thriller with you know gaslighting and all kinds of stuff going on um and i was horrified at the end it was some kind of super supernatural thing with someone shape-shifting i thought well that's a total cheat you know, <laughs> I've, I've no I've, I've no objection to supernatural elements as long as it's you're clear that that's what you're going to get um there's a friend of mine called ben mears who writes some uh kind of post-apocalyptic steampunk kind of stuff with uh ghosts and things in it but that's fine you know what you're going to get um, but if it's what you think is a straightforward thriller, and then all of a sudden there's a sort of a bit of not necessarily magic, but you know ghosts or, or weird stuff going on, I, I just think that that's that's cheating the the, the reader. Mm. Is this a point to tell them now that I'm an AI? <laughs> <laughs> Blimey, is that the CPU? Well, you've left yourself wide open there. <laughs> just to pick up on something Rachel was saying there about uh, the same but different uh, any of your listeners who are into or have studied uh, business change management um, people either are change averse or they love change um, but it's, they are the statistical outliers, the bits in the middle are the people who prefer things to remain the same, but can handle a little bit of change. So if the publishers are looking at the science uh, and they have that in mind, that's possibly would help them predict them what's, you know, what's coming along. Um, mm. you, you know, you're, you can't, you, if you're writing a series, they want the characters to evolve, not implode. Yes. Mm. <laughs> we do too. We don't want your characters to implode. No, be very messy. <laughs> okay, I'm, I, I think we're, we're getting towards the end of this wonderful conversation. But I wanted to ask one more question to all of you, really, which is the importance, in your minds or not, of having a resolution that satisfies the audience, and how difficult that is to achieve. Um, Brian, I mean, is it a question of you know the bad guys getting done for what they did? Or is there any room for ambiguity around that, do you think? Well, I think it's all right to leave a few things unresolved at the end of the book, which you can then pick up in another one. Um, I mean, in in book three, I had a, a an organised crime gang which was taken down temporarily by the, the, the police and, and associates. Um, but... At the beginning book four, then they were exerting their revenge and they started by blowing up the police station. So although there was a kind of a temporary resolution, um, they came back. And I do I have brought back characters from previous novels into into current ones. So I think there is that. I, I think what they what people liked about cozy uh, or golden age detective stories is that there were horrible things happening, but the end in most cases, not everyone, um, the villain got their comeuppance. They were either arrested or obviously in, in darker times hanged or um, 
maybe they committed suicide or something like that. So people liked a nice tidy ending. Um, it isn't always like that in real life, of course. Uh, there are lots of unsolved cases. And I think it's okay to have a degree of resolution. You, you, the reader's got to go away thinking, well, yeah, okay, that was all right, rather than what? So they got away with it. I did read the Scandinavian one, which was brilliantly written. It was about child abuse. Um, and at the end of it, the, the paedophile escaped with a young girl. I thought, Christ, why did they let that happen? You know, so I didn't. I wasn't happy with that one. So I, I think, yeah, you need resolution, but you can have loose ends, which you can then pick up on in another book. Yeah, that's fair. Rachel? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, resolution with a few loose ends. Certainly as a reader, if I'm reading a police procedural, I expect to know at the end who done it and that he, they've been banged to rights. I don't mind knowing, uh, not knowing precisely what's happening with regard to some of the police officers if they've got things bubbling away in the background I don't mind them not being resolved because that will lead me into book two which I will then enjoy having got to know the characters in book one so that's as a reader what I look for in police procedures so I try and emulate that in my own writing I think yeah and in a sense Harry you've uh retro you know you you created a series but weren't expecting to so do you now leave those threads in so that your characters can can move on to the next i think you know while while brian was talking i was nodding away in in agreement um um and same with rachel there's not a lot i'm going to add that's different but the word i would use is the word you've just used which is threads um I know I feel cheated if things are not tidied up all nice and neatly. I know that real life is not like that, but but the main points, in my my opinion, must be tidied up. But there's no harm whatsoever in leaving a thread running that you're going to pick up again. But it's probably going to be a thread that, in or again, in my opinion, it's going to be a thread that helps to develop the character or maybe the setting a bit further um, rather than, you know, the criminals got away with it. Um, I One of the best things I like to see in any review that's written about any of my books is that the readers were satisfied by the ending mm -hmm. because if you're not satisfied, the book could be absolutely brilliant 99% of the way through, but if you leave the reader unsatisfied, that is what they will remember. Um, line of duty, anyone? You know, yes, some, yes. Some, you know, some people were okay with the fact that they left everything hanging, uh, but a lot of people thought that they just didn't know what to do uh, with the ending. So um, I agree with the others. Uh, and I would keep something going if it was a thread that developed the character. Nothing to do with the resolution of the crime. Fair point. Fair point, and very well put. Sounds like this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> as indeed you all have been absolutely brilliant. Well, um, I had to sort of change the tone somewhat, you, uh, lift the tone up to a higher level. <laughs> yeah, elevate. Uh, but it is time for the Rebecca's festive random question. So my question to you all, and I'm going to start uh, with Harry because you're to our left on the screen. Is is there Thank one Christmas? 
One Christmas food you absolutely love and you'd eat all year round if you could. And is there one Christmas food you can't stand and you'd have to be paid to eat? And what are they? Even if you paid me, I wouldn't eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> they are they are the devil's work. <laughs> but you know, I was listening to Radio Four on the way here, or way home. I mean, and they were saying that sprouts are really good if you're female because they have estrogen in them, so they sort of boost your hormones. You're kidding me? No. So that apparently they're really good for if you're going through the change. <laughs> eat sprouts. Mind boggles. <laughs> It would be a ridiculous market to be in when you can only sell your product in you know one week of the year. Um, so that would be uh, that would be the one I just would not eat under any circumstances. Um, my wife Shona makes a fantastic thing, which is got pine nuts, uh, basil, uh, various other things in it, and it's called a red pepper. It's called a red pepper flat. And mm. you know it's one of these plated. Mm. I know what you mean. That's sort of crisscross pastry. Yeah. So she's veggie and I'm not, but it's absolutely fantastic, and I could eat that every week. And black Very appealing. <laughs> it does sound good. I love pine nuts and anything but sort of pestery flavour. So yeah, that'd be me. And I agree with you on sprouts. Actually, I can't stand them. I eat one only because I feel I should. No, I wouldn't even eat one. And I'm not right, a fussy eater. I'm not a fussy eater at all, but I would not eat Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Brian, your turn. Um, I suppose the thing I'd eat all year round would be mince pies. Um, it puzzles me that you can get hot cross buns all year round, but you can only get mince pies at Christmas, which is a shame. Um, but apart from that, I'm definitely with Harry on sprouts. <laughs> Can't stand them. <laughs> Rachel, are we going to get three? I need to know, Rachel, do you like sprouts? <laughs> I absolutely love them. As soon as you asked the question, the very first thing I thought was I would eat sprouts all year <laughs> round. Absolutely adore them. Uh, the other thing that I would eat all year round is our homemade bread sauce. Oh, I love bread sauce. My daughter's gluten free. So we uh, we made up our own recipe and it's got lots of bread and lots of onions, milk. <laughs> and um, gluten-free flour in and it's incredibly lumpy you you couldn't serve it in a restaurant but we absolutely adore it so I yeah. absolutely love bread sauce don't I and I'm the only one who eats it so I make it for myself <laughs> so what what's your form of de devil's work we yeah. haven't got that side of it yet well that's easy because I'm veggie so it would be the turkey <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough how about you uh well, I'm more of a convert to Brussels sprouts nowadays, especially if you buy them on the stalk, because they're that much fresher. They're not as bitter. And I think if you cook them in in stock with a little bit of bacon, I'm sorry there, Rachel, that's not for <laughs> you, but um, it can be absolutely delightful. It elevates some, as I'd say, on my Yes. So um, I, I used to be anti that, but what is it um, that I can't? Well, even even mince pies, which used to set my teeth on edge, I now like. So I don't think there's anything that that's really. Do you like my bread sauce? Yes. Oh, there's nothing that I wouldn't. Cabbage. You don't eat much of that. No. Okay. <laughs> I'll put cabbage on the on the bonfire. Um, and in terms of what I'd eat all year round, or I'd probably, yeah, I'm I'm a nut for, well, my own sausage rolls, the ones that I make. Um, I would eat those every day. If yeah. We can get sausage rolls in. How about you? Me, um, I'm yeah, I'm in the sprouts camp. Don't like them; they're evil. But um, 
um well you know pickled cabbage i do eat all year round and i get very cross because it disappears from the shops in january and so i have to search far and wide for a jar of pickled cabbage and i eat a jar a week so and and my youngest worked out how much i spend a year on pickled cabbage and it was a fair amount (laughs) (laughs) we're into triple figures you'd find a polish deli or something that might sell them because there's yeah that's a fair fair point yeah i should learn to make it really my grandfather used to make the most amazing pickled cabbage and jar it up for everybody christmas so i need to learn to make it i think it's a fair point well look um (laughs) after that uh roundup of of loves and and hates uh which is appropriate the hate part for police procedural i guess um thank you so much all of you so harry fisher brian price Rachel Sargent, thank you so much for joining us for our festive look at police procedures. It's been hugely informative, and I think uh, people will get a great deal out of it. So thank you for your time. And again, from us, happy Christmas. And New Year. Happy Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Christmas, yes. Our thanks to our trio of wonderful authors for joining us, Brian Price, Harry Fisher, Rachel Sargent. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. We are immensely grateful, and I hope you all found this as valuable as we did. Great, uh, great panel, and um, I think we've established this as a great format to go forward for our specials yeah, in future. Yeah, we'd like to do more, definitely. Absolutely. Now, next week, we will return to our sort of normal shows, i.e. a bit of news, an interview, a bit of reflection, jabber. looking at all jabber and nonsense. <laughs> uh, but we're talking to Derek Thompson who is an author with Joffy Books, uh, principally of thrillers, sort of big espionage Oh, your sort of books. Mm, yeah, macho. Man books. Uh, man books. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> joking. And uh, he's also written um, some more sort of regional uh, mysteries as well. And uh, a prolific author for yeah. Joffy. And so always good to hear from, from the standout independent um label i think in the country yeah definitely one of the you know certainly the inspiration behind us starting up was was (laughs) joffy and um you know they have such a broad stable now but uh it works and uh so it'd be lovely to talk to to derek next week and as we've mentioned already we're actually fairly well booked up till you know the borders of april yeah up for easter i know it's great I, i don't have to seek out um uh likely suspects anymore they come to me which is fantastic Mm. i love it so, mm. And also from across the pond as well, we've got a, a couple of um, American uh, writers on the podcast in the spring, early spring. So, and yeah. I don't know how they find out about us. <laughs> well, we're, we, you know, after three years of shows, you know, we're established now. And mm. I think that also uh, one of the things that reflects and that people talk about amongst other with other authors is the sort of room we give people to express themselves. Um and the organic nature of the conversations. So I think that is quite appealing. And um, I'd like to think so, yeah. I think that's, I think <laughs> the word spreads. Um, let's, let's hope so. So Derek is our, our guest next week. Now, it's obviously New Year, so we're off tonight to... Uh, this is New Year's Eve, we're recording this, obviously presenting it to you on New Year's Day. Um, we're off for a, for a small soiree in uh, the uh, sort of cultural end of the west midlands uh, warwickshire well, warwickshire <laughs> near stratford you know not far away uh, with an old friend from university yeah which will be lovely and then the week to come 
we're on our own. No boys here. No, I know. I don't like it. No, I miss you, them. You know, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> well, I'm hoping to go up and, you know, we're, we're going to have a, uh, a celebration, post-Christmas celebration with my two sons because we didn't see them over Christmas and uh, we'll do something. Uh, I'm going to be watching a lot of darts uh, yes, because the World Darts final is on Wednesday. But between <sighs> then and, you know, three days of high-octane darts action yes, to look forward wait. to. Um, which is my guilty pleasure. I've been playing on the darts board as well. You have. I can hear you. I'm in the kitchen working and I hear good thunt, good thunt, good thunt. Shuffle, 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 shuffle. Good thunt. Yeah. It's got my, <laughs> got my step counts up massively. And I've picked up the guitar again, haven't I, recently? You have, so. you have. So, I mean, you know, those sort of creative pursuits. Um, <laughs> feels good. So it'll, it'll be a week of, I guess... For 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 you and I, it's about getting some of the projects that we've nearly finished out of the way and get onto the fresh stuff. Yes, because most of the fresh stuff will start the following Monday. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm still playing catch up a lot of a lot of things. Yeah, so. and I've got uh, I don't know how many narrations to do. I've got about five or six books on the on the on the slate, which need sort of progress. Yes. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, and um, I mean it's really enjoyable because actually doing it every day. I'm like anything, really. You get better at it. You get faster at yeah, it. Yeah, your more sta- stamina, stamina improves. Yeah, definitely. I can do longer in the in the booth than than I was three months ago. Um, but you know, it'll get to the point soon where I'm thinking, right, where are my next projects coming from, and 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 working towards that. And actually, I ought to mention that in mid January, in a couple of weeks' time, in fact, I will be in London learning the American accent. Um, now I can do an American accent. Of oh, sorts, but it'll be a general American accent and, and nailing it down. So it's a day's teaching at, at a leading theatre school just to get it right. Because to be honest, as a narrator, if you don't have it, then you're turning down 90% of the work that's out there mm. um, automatically. And, you know, the, the, you know, it's already – I feel sorry for British female narrators because there are far few projects from them – than there are for British males, and then British males have far fewer than American males. And so, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. And, you know, 90% of the book market, audio book market, is America. Now, that surprises me because um, we, we've talked about this before, how the, the high percentage of readers being female. So wouldn't the, the percentage of um, books, it, wouldn't that be a high percentage of books written from a female perspective? Yes and no. and Because it, it, the things I get sent auditions requests for uh particularly in the romance field require they've often got chapters written from the male perspective and so they're looking for a particular type of american voice to do those chapters often it's split narration now in america it's oh, really? very very popular yeah um so uh, you know there is a lot of work for, for for blokes uh if you can do the american accent and i think that you know i can't you know, it's an opportunity. It's it's an avenue I need to open up. Yes. More readily, uh, I, I was offered a, a a book last year, which um, would have been terrific, but it you know my American accent wasn't on point, and no. you know the author said, "No, I, you know you've got to be really, uh, you know I can hear it, and you know I love your voice, but it's not going to work for me if you can't get it right." So at that point, I decided this had to change. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to know. And of course, I'm, you know, this is an interesting delve into the world that I've never really explored before because anything 
in, in a dramatic sense that I've ever done was Amdram when I was a kid. And, you know, I was just sort of put myself forward for a part, get it and, and do it. But I wasn't doing theatre studies. And I think that this sort of thing will have a lot of the sort of self-conscious stuff, like, you know, looking at, you know, pulling faces in mirrors and, yes. and warm-up techniques and the all that sort of... physical side of acting. Yeah, that I'm not used to. And, you know, I've got to a point in my life, I'm 53, I'm going to feel a little... I'm probably going to be the oldest person there, I would imagine. And... I'm going to be a little self-conscious, oh, I think. Oh, I don't know. You, be, you might be surprised. It'll be interesting to I'll throw out. myself into it, regardless of what whatever it is they ask me to do. I'll, I'll, I'll go for well, it. Well, you've got nothing to lose. No, you? absolutely. And you're never going to meet these people again. So No, matter. no, true, true. But, yeah, I mean, I've always had a certain reticence to do that kind of I stuff. I know. It's just funny knowing you, because <laughs> you do, yeah, you have a certain confidence, but you're actually not very confident. So you just have to tap into that confident side I, of you i can put it on when i need to yeah just about there are some times when it just doesn't come and you know the confidence isn't there and it's horrible no i know because you, you scurry away and mm. <laughs> god i do yeah absolutely um it'll be interesting uh, you know it may be that yeah that i do find you know it, it works out really well but it's a little just embrace it i know i think it's back in my mind you're feeling slightly nervous already but yeah you've got to just embrace it Okay, we've taken enough of your New Year's time uh, with our jabber. I as forgot usual. we were still on the podcast. We are. We're just having a natter. Uh, but that's the nature of these things. So, Derek Thompson, our guest next week. Join us again for the Hobcast Book Show between now and then. Uh, have a wonderful start to a new year and a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.